And one of the most important things you can do is actually recognize what's happening in your body and try to deal with that before dealing with whatever the issue was that took you into the fight. I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalglish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. Hey there, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of I'm Not Your Shrink. I am so excited for today's episode. As you guys know, I am usually thrilled by who I get to sit with. It is such a privilege. But before I do that, I want to tell you about an exciting event coming up. On November 12th, I have teamed up with Dr. Morgan Cutlip, and we are going to help you learn to set boundaries. Now, I know that boundaries is such a hot topic, and oftentimes, whenever I post about this on my Instagram page, people are asking me, I don't know what my boundaries are. I don't know how to do this and still feel good about it, or I struggle to say no. So before the holidays and with all that is going on right now, Morgan and I are offering a webinar to help you set boundaries, to learn to say no, and to still feel good about it. So head over to my Instagram page. The link is in my bio at dr.tracyd. Today, I sit with Elizabeth Earnshaw, and we talk all about attachment and building a healthy and secure relationship. Elizabeth is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified Gottman therapist. She owns A Better Life Therapy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she and her colleagues have supported hundreds of couples. Elizabeth also writes and speaks on relationships, and she shares so many of her insights on her Instagram account at Liz Listens. And Liz and I have also been able to collaborate in terms of our membership. So she has showed up in my membership offering so much of her wisdom. And she also has her own membership program, which is called Love Lessons 365. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Liz, I'm so glad you are joining me here today on the podcast. I'm just so excited to sit with you and have such an important conversation around relationships attachment. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here too. So why don't we start with you telling us three things that make you who you are? Well, I am a mom and I think that that is a huge part of my identity. I'm also a wife and that is a huge part of my identity too. Um, And the third thing is I'm not going to do another relationship, right? Because we have a million relationships. I could say I'm a sister <laughs> and all of these other types of things. I'm a therapist, yeah. but um, I love interior design. That oh. is a third random thing that I'll throw in there that's more fun than just telling what my profession is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting as therapists too, because I, I know you own your own clinic that you have been able to likely design and bring in all of the different things in all of your therapy offices. Yes. My husband jokes all the time that the only reason I open new offices is so that I can buy more furniture. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's funny. Fair enough. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So today I really wanted to talk about our relationships and attachment because, I mean, you and I both work from the model of using attachment theory to understand individuals and to also understand what they do in their relationships and how relationships unfold and develop. And, you know, I just thought knowing all that you do on Instagram, how many followers you have, knowing that you have a membership space where you teach people how to have healthy relationships and how to have strong connections. I just knew that this would be such a good conversation for us to connect on and just to, to, to have a conversation about it. Yeah. I, I mean, you know that I love having this conversation about attachment and I know that you do too. And that's really the premise of a lot of what you talk about is emotional safety and connection within relationships and how it plays out with attachment. Yes, absolutely. So maybe we could just jump in and kind of talk about what is attachment theory? Yeah, if if we're explaining it to just kind of someone just to help them understand. Just a basic understanding of it, right? So a long time ago, decades ago, there was um, some studies done on moms and their children, which is really kind of how attachment theory came to be that showed that depending on how people engaged with their children, their children responded to the relationship with that person in a certain way, particularly when they were in distress, right? And so some children felt really safe in their relationships when they were in distress, and so they would go to their caretaker. Other children felt distress, and they didn't necessarily feel like there was much they would get from their caretaker, Um, so they would kind of avoid the caretaker, right? If they were crying and, um, of course the studies were done on mothers then, but, um, if they were crying and the mother came in, they would maybe even look away or act as if they were distracted. So they didn't need to, to be with the mother. And then there were other children who were distressed and they would kind of pursue or chase after the parent. And then when the parent would pick them up, they didn't really know what to do with that that, you know, the parent didn't soothe them, they would still cry or maybe push push on to the parent to push them away. But again, if put down, they wanted that parent to pick them back up. And so what was found was that there were kind of three different what were called attachment styles, one which is secure, and then two insecure styles of being avoidant and anxious in, in relationships. So as we've looked at that theory, we've looked at the ways it applies to adults and their adult relationships and how safe do you feel in relationship with another adult, particularly romantic partners, and how insecure do you feel and how does that show up in, um, you know, the way that you connect with them and the way that you protect yourself. Like there's this dance that happens between connecting and protecting Yes, absolutely. That connecting and protecting. And and in a way that is a bit different from the mom and child connection that we see in our adult relationships, that would be that kind of care seeking, right? I'm seeking the care. What do I do when I'm trying to connect that? And then also that care giving. So what do I then do when I'm giving the care to somebody else? There's those two elements there. Absolutely. Yeah. And so often we might have the same type of attachment style we had in childhood with our adult partners, even though it's a different type of relationship. You know, it's not um, one person caring for the other person and the other person needing that care, but we still, I always say to people, really the way that your childhood set you up is, you know, how safe are you in relationships? 
And so if you feel like you're super safe in relationships, you might not feel like you need to protect yourself so much. You might be more vulnerable in the connection, more flexible. Um, You might know how to set boundaries and not be afraid that that person's going to reject you because uh, relationships are safe. They're a safe place for you to be. And you you believe, you have a core belief that people are mostly going to be there for you. But if you had an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style, you might feel like relationships aren't the safest place to be. And because of that, you come up with a whole bunch of interesting ways to keep yourself safe. I really like that you you use the word safe here because I think that's something so important for people to remember and for for those who are listening that these these strategies are a way of keeping us safe that we have to find and and it's not just about physical safety but it's also about that emotional safety because showing up and expressing yourself or even the active and, and I talked about this in the friendship podcast that active like reaching out to someone and saying I need this from you is is incredibly scary and and risky in some ways. Yeah, it's so scary and so risky. And I I think that something that can be really helpful to people, and I don't know if you found this too, is even being able to identify that it's scary. You know, a lot of the time we're so used to engaging in this way in friendships or with romantic partners that we don't recognize that the way we're engaging is often based off of fear. And Mm -hmm. so being able to say, I don't ask my partner for help because I'm afraid of rejection, of, you know, being seen as weak, of being abandoned, of being let down. We, we think I just don't ask for help. That's who I am. I'm, I'm strong. I don't need it. But to identify fear, um, and safety, both of these things, I think can be incredibly powerful for moving forward and being a little bit more transparent with what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. What's happening underneath that. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom and instead my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using Loop Engage to help dampen the sound around me. And these Loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code Loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. You know I am all about caring for ourselves, especially in these busy years with our young kids. We are pulled in so many directions, but I think it's so important for us to find ways to nurture ourselves that require no additional time from us. 
I should probably let you in on one of my favorite things to do to look after me, and that is to get a good night's sleep on amazing sheets. I am beyond thrilled to bring you Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products with an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for my listeners. We've got a code. It's SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Now, I didn't believe it until I tried them, but I firmly stand by my sleep improving with the temperature regulating technology, which adapts to your body's needs. For the past year, I have not slept on any other brand of sheets. Cozy Earth uses the very best fabrics, materials, and wares, offering superior softness for you to sink into at the end of those long days. I look forward to getting into bed, and we've been loving the sheets for over a year and their sleepwear is so unbelievably soft and it's made with such great quality. But the best part is that if you're worried about commitment, enjoy a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty on all of your purchases. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code SHRINK for an exclusive 35% off and give the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth. Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, there is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's zocdoccom slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. Okay. So you described the secure piece and the secure piece is I can lean on you. I can be vulnerable. I trust that you're there for me. And I also know that I'm good enough to ask for that. What does someone who is more insecure in terms of the anxiety? So if someone is higher in an anxious attachment or they're preoccupied as the kind of research word uses, what does that look like? Yeah. So someone who's in a more preoccupied state is exactly what that word sounds like, right? You're more preoccupied with the relationship um, in a way that actually takes you out of presence with that person. So you might be hypersensitive, hyper aware to what's happening all of the time. You know, your experience might be that your partner's mood shifts just a little bit and all of a sudden you feel all sorts of fear. Why did they get so quiet? Did I say something wrong? Are they mad at me? So you have hyper awareness. Um, and that, of course, as if anybody's relating to this, it can become problematic, right? Because you're not actually in that moment experiencing your partner who perhaps had a bad day or is tired or um, 
their mood didn't even shift. You just assumed that it did. So it takes you away from actually being present with them. Um, People who are more preoccupied also tend to behave in ways to keep the relationship in that moment, but not to keep it in the long term. And what I mean by that is that anything that feels safety seeking in that moment, that's going to relieve the fears that they have of abandonment, they might do even if it's outside of their own integrity or value system. For instance, and I, I certainly identify more with being, you know, anxiously attached or more preoccupied. I've moved away from that a lot, but in the past, if I sensed that someone was going to abandon me, I might text them a lot. Mm-hmm. That with me, can't you just talk to me? Why aren't you saying anything? And while getting a text back in those moments, even if it was, would you just shut up and leave me alone? <laughs> it relieved something in me in the moment. But in the long term, the damage would be done where the person felt like I wasn't respecting their space or that I was, you know, um, unfairly accusing them. Sometimes it can lead to threats, like I'm going to break up with you uh-huh. or we might as well just never see each other again. And all of this is really an attempt to elicit safety, which it kind of sounds a little bit wonky, right? Why would you tell someone you're going to break up with them? But the hope is that they're going to say, well, I really want to be with you. And then you'll feel safe again. So those are some things that can happen with people who feel preoccupied. It's often the the analogy there would be the toddler who is trying to get the attention, right? Because we know that as children, any attention is better than no attention. So I'm going to poke you first. And then after the poke and that doesn't get your attention, then I'm going to hit you. And if that doesn't, then I'm going to call you a name and I'm going to kind of keep upping the ante that what's important that I always like to talk about when it comes to that uh, anxiety space is that any response is better than no response. And that sometimes partners, and I'm sure you see this with the couples you work with, sometimes that partner who is more anxiously attached will throw in the grenade and say, okay, well, we're over, just as a way to kind of get any response from their partner. Yes, yes. And sometimes they throw the grenade at their partner, like, okay, it's over. And sometimes they throw the grenade at themselves. Uh. And they say, fine, I don't want you to be mad at me anymore. So we don't have to argue. I'll give up all of my life dreams so that I can make you happy and I can please you. So in both directions, sometimes there's relational harm and sometimes there's self-harm really that's being done just to keep the relationship, not to grow it, not to be fulfilled by it, but to keep it because there's almost a primal panic about the possibility of being left behind. Yes. Yeah. When our partners go offline there, it's like, it's like hitting a panic button in our brain. It's like danger, danger. This is so scary. And in a way as a child, that's the same thing. If your caregivers were not available to you or were not consistent with you, then that is also dangerous. Help me understand or help our listeners understand the what would parents, what would the parent look like of someone who has developed an anxious attachment? Inconsistent. So sometimes super warm and present and, and it, it models what the person's doing too, right? Like sometimes they're really engaged and then sometimes they're not there. Um, so, and this could happen for many reasons. Like I really don't like to parent blame. Mm. 
sometimes no, no parents blaming. We know that our parents do the best that they can with what they had, right? And, and, you know, especially with our generation, like if you think of where we're at, we're at a really important time. And, and, I, and I talk a lot about this when I'm sitting with our, with our clients is that, um, you know, we have so much research now for us as parents. There is so much research available to us and this understanding of how important validation is, how important it is to see emotions and to reflect that back to them, where our parents didn't have that. And actually, I was just having a conversation with my mom about how um, you know, when she started having kids, it was near, it was the end of Dr. Spock, but that was what was around, right? Which is very much emotionally detached. So there's definitely no parent blaming. It's so important to see that our parents did the best that they could. And also having that, (laughs) right. But that we, we also had needs that were not met. Yeah. That, you know, you can do both. You don't have to blame your parents and you can recognize and validate yourself that there might have been some experiences you had that primed you to feel more anxious um, or preoccupied in your adult relationships. And so as a child, perhaps you had a hot and cold parent. Um, It could have been that that was their personality. It could have been environmentally related. You know, maybe they could be with you four days a week, but they had a job that kind of forced them to be away some other times, and that to you felt like abandonment. Um, You might have had a parent who you felt very close to, and then at some point um, wasn't a part of your life anymore. You know, maybe there was a divorce, or they left the family, or they died. And so that could certainly also create anxious attachment. Um, Another thing that can create that is when you don't really get a lot of time to, like, identify the self in childhood. So are you given enough autonomy? You know, there's an importance with balance. So it's, it's a need to be validated and supported and have somebody there to catch you when you fall, but to also sometimes let you fall. And then they're the one who gives you the bandaid on your knee and you know that they're going to be there to help you. But people tend to be anxious if they also weren't given enough chance to see that they're okay on their own, but you can only feel okay on your own if you know that someone's going to be there for you if it's not working out. When you reach out and ask, when, when clients say to me, oh, you know, mom or dad, they, they were there for me. Um, they were always there for me. I, I'll ask, and how was that for you? Because for some people, they might say, well, actually, you know, I wanted that time alone. And, you know, mom didn't give that to me. And I always felt like she was right there and not respecting that I didn't want to share something with her and she kept asking. Right. And so like that affects also too what we learn about relationships and about ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I have lots of people who will say similar things like, you know, it was great because I could tell they loved me, but there were periods of time where I just wanted my own mistakes. I wanted to do the thing that I probably couldn't do and fail at it and get through that, but that they would sometimes have a parent who protected them from all um, possibilities of Mm. failure. Absolutely. Okay. Switch gears a little bit. What does the avoidant attachment look like? Yeah. So as you can imagine, it probably looks similar to what happens in the relationship dynamic, but when the child reaches out for emotional support, it's, not really there. And again, different reasons for some people, it is because they have what I call the more cerebral parent, 
um, where they were taken. And this can be hard for people because they'll say, well, I had a great childhood. We had everything we needed. My parents were around. Um, but I'll ask, how did they talk about emotions? And they'll say, oh, we didn't really talk about that. You know, maybe we talked about research or what they were doing at work or how I could get better at my athletics, but we didn't talk about feelings. And I'll say, well, what did you talk about when you were really sad or what happened in your first breakup or, or whatever? And they'll say, oh, we didn't, you know, we didn't talk about that. I don't even remember being sad when I was little. Yes. Yeah. So that can be an experience. It can also be from severe emotional neglect, right? Like just actually needing an adult to help you and they just don't see you at all. And what starts to happen is you formulate the idea that it's much safer to learn to be super autonomous, super independent, because you kind of just need to figure it out on your own. And honestly, it's the reality when you're little, you did kind of need to figure out how to cope with the feeling by yourself. Um, And so you develop that as a part of your identity. And that can be hard in adulthood because for a long time, you might've told yourself, this is actually a really strong part of me. I'm not like those needy people. I'm, I'm independent. I don't cry about things. I don't freak out about things. And yes, it's certainly a strength in many areas, but it also probably causes some problems in relationships. Um, And so it can be a weakness there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that strategy of really shutting down what you feel and keeping it inside. And we know that when you keep things inside, it's still there. It's still in your body. You are still experiencing that, you know, if someone's listening and you're thinking, okay, well, I think my partner's more avoidant. Um, you know, it's not that your partner doesn't feel emotions. Actually, they have a whole well of emotions, but they haven't learned how to regulate, how to express, or how to even feel safe with someone. And so they've learned to really just tuck that away. And that decreases that sense of anxiety there of when I have an emotion, can I turn to someone? Well, no, I don't think they can be there. Okay, put it all away, right? Like I tuck this all inside. And so actually they have just as many emotions going on inside of them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's why many men tend to be more avoidant with their emotions because not only might their parents have shut down the emotion, society does. And so they learn that it's shameful to have them and that it's a badge of honor not to have them. Um, Unfortunately, no one's figured out how to just like remove emotions from the body, but they do a great job at masking it. It's such a huge piece. It is such a, you know, thinking of couples, when I work with couples, that that is such a huge part of the conversation of being able to say that, you know, this is part of socialization. And, you know, I, I even see it with my children that, you know, other generations will say to my son, oh, you fell down, stand up, you know, you're okay, brush it off, keep going. And then when my daughter came along, I noticed the just the difference of, oh no, you fell down. Let's, I'll give you a kiss and I'll, I'll rub your knee. You know, how we treat boys and girls and how we teach them about emotions is so important. And again, thinking of all of this information that our parents didn't have. Um, but even as myself growing up, and now I'm aware of this stuff, but it was interesting because one morning I had to confront kind of my own belief of what I grew up with, where my son had kind of come to greet me and you know, now that he's five, like he's still this little guy, but he's starting to get bigger. And, and I thought he doesn't like this quick thought of he doesn't need a hug. And I had to kind of scratch that out and say, no, 
five-year-olds need hugs. Kids need hugs. We all need hugs. And remembering that it's not a boy or girl thing. It's not a gender thing. And this is a human thing. And that's the key thing about attachment is that we all have these core needs and longings inside of us. Absolutely. And like you said, it's so human to me to know that you have people who are there for you no matter what, because in an evolutionary sense, if you didn't, you would literally die. So the primal panic makes sense. Like yes. maybe now in modern life, you could live in a house by yourself. I mean, theoretically and be completely fine forever with no friends, no family, whatever. Um, your mental health would suffer. But a long time ago, you couldn't live out on the tundra by yourself without a village. You uh-huh. needed people to want to be with you and to be safe with you and to be consistent and predictable. And that's why this stuff feels so powerful because it's it's our evolution telling us no, you cannot be alone. You need to be connected to other people. What's the pattern that we see between someone who is more anxiously attached and someone who's more avoidantly attached? So thinking of that couple that shows up with that, I guess we'd say like mismatched attachment styles, which is very common. That is a common pairing. Um, what does that look like? Well, a couple of things. There's often like a pursuer distancer dynamic in conflict. <laughs> which you could probably speak to really well because I, <laughs> I know that's your jam. <laughs> totally my jam, absolutely. And it maps onto the attachment styles. Yes, it maps onto them perfectly. There's something we talk about a lot in Gottman that shows up a lot, which is meta-emotion mismatches. Um, so even outside of conflict, a meta-emotion mismatch is that you have different beliefs about emotions. So you feel something about feelings. Mm. And so... Someone who tends to have more of an avoidant attachment um, is going to feel um, shut down about feelings, frustrated by feelings, annoyed about feelings, um, maybe dismissive of them because their belief is that they're really not necessary. And in Gottman Method, we call that kind of like they're more of like a solution coach. So if you have a more avoidant partner, you could also call them the solution coach, which is can be nice sometimes, but they're, they're more really like good at solutions and being, like yeah. you said, cerebral and being the intellectual problem solver, a strength, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that can cause problems when you need an emotional conversation, but it can also be really important sometimes to have a partner who's able to say, all right, we're in crisis. We'll deal with the emotions in a minute, but I'm going to figure out the solution. Um, And then the other person might be more of an emotion coach, which would be likely be the more anxiously attached person um, who is going to think and feel that emotions are a good thing. They they feel soothed by emotions. They feel um, like they want to be responsive to them. And so when you have an anxious and an avoidant partner, you're often having a solution coach and an emotion coach matched with each other, but neither of them realize that they signed up to be coached on those things. (laughs) And so, you know, there will be a lot of frustrations around that. And unfortunately, a lot of judgment sometimes. You're so emotional. You are so dramatic. Um, Can't you just figure out how to get over it. And then the other person saying, you're so repressed, you're so um, distant, you're so cold. Um, But yeah, that's one way that we try to look at it within Gottman method. 
then there's pursuer distancer, which I feel like you probably speak on that so much better than I do. Oh goodness. This is, this is a daily conversation. Absolutely. This is, you know, when we feel anxious, um, we hyperactivate, right? So we, we make our needs louder and the analogy that I love to use and Sue Johnson, the co-creator of emotionally focused couples therapy, she uses, it's like knocking on a door. And so I'm knocking on your door. I'm like, hello, hello. Are you there? Are you there for me? Will you open the door, respond to me. I need you. I need you. I need you. And it's like that hyper activating. And as that person knocks, the louder the, the knock is, which it's not the pursuer is always such a tough word because it's, it's also, we call it the blamer in the literature as well. It's always such a tough word because people feel blamed in some way. But what that is, is it's like deep down inside, there's a fear of being alone, abandoned, and it's incredibly scary. And so we know that you have to find some way to deal with that emotion and that's how they're dealing with it. And so they knock and knock and knock. And then the other partner is behind the door, distancing, shutting down or being defensive because it's overwhelming and they too are trying to protect themselves. And because the emotion is so overwhelming, they're flooded with emotion. I know you talk about flooding really in such a great way, but like when that emotion comes to you, it becomes so overwhelming that that partner who's not, who's more of the, um, the solution coach feels so overwhelmed with that emotion. And oftentimes what I think, what I think the individual who has more of that anxious attachment, what I think they miss is they don't see the internal turmoil that their partner is having. And that oftentimes that turmoil looks like, am I enough for you? Can I do this for you? Am I good enough? I feel like I'm always failing and I can't get this right. There's this just internal distress that's not being shared. Yeah. And I like how you talked about sometimes people can feel blamed with the terms, you know, um, it's hard to find terms that can completely remove that. But I think I always love to talk about why it's actually not about blame at all. And that both people in the interaction are trying to do things to save themselves and save the relationship. Um, you know, like the, you, you said, the pursuer is thinking, if we don't talk about this right now, our relationship's going to fall apart. I need to save the relationship. And the distancer is also thinking about saving the relationship. Yes. If we talk about this right now, we are going to have an explosion and we're going to say things we can't take back. I wish we would just shut up at this point. <laughs> um, or if we talk about it now, I'm going to agree to something that I don't really agree to because I feel like engulfed and suffocated right now. So both people are really trying to navigate saving the relationship in the way that they know um, automatically how to do that. Unfortunately, um, it doesn't actually usually save the relationship. It just makes each person feel kind of violated. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to give the listener uh, another analogy right here that is always really helpful. I like to think of what Stan Tatkin talks about, and that is that the one who is more anxious tends to be like a wave and you're coming in and the, the person who's more avoidant is, is more of the Island. And so you can see kind of the wave coming to the Island, but the Island likes to be alone. The wave wants to come close. And so it's, it's a way of looking at it that maybe isn't so blaming, but helps to understand like your, your, these are your coping mechanisms. These are your coping strategies. Yeah. These are the ways that you try to soothe your nervous system. Um, And 
they worked at one point, which is why you do them. At one point, it helped you to back away, avoid distance, because that's how you felt safe. Or at one point, it helped you to chase after mom as she was going to work and grab onto her because you did get that hug. Or it helped to scream and cry because it did make dad come downstairs and see what was going on. Uh, And so really, you have to kind of train your body more than even your mind to know that this isn't mom or dad or grandma or whoever took care of you anymore. This is very different. And so some of those things that worked on getting that hug or getting that space, they're not going to work this time. Tell me more about the body piece. Like what, what do you mean like train your body? Cause what's happening in, inside for those people? Yeah. So you alluded to me talking about flooding a lot. (laughs) One thing that is really important to understand is that when we're threatened, um, which relationships, relationship loss makes us feel threatened, um, our bodies react. And I don't know if you talk a lot about polyvagal theory or not, but I love thinking about it in those terms where when we're safe, we're at the top of the ladder. When we feel a little bit unsafe, um, our body starts to get activated into what's called fight or flight, and we lose our capacity to do the things we can do when we're safe. We lose our capacity to joke, to think through things, to have reasonable and rational conversation um, because we're we're in a um, survival mode. And so in that, some people will fight, so they'll pursue, so we can use the same model again. And some people will flight and they'll leave, you know, they'll either leave physically, like I'm not here, or they'll like get in their car and say, you know, F you for right now, I'm going to get my car and leave you. And then sometimes you can drop even further down, which is where you're just like frozen. And when this is happening, there's a lot of stuff happening in your body. So your heart rate is increasing, stress hormones are being released all over the place. Um, You are feeling muscle tension. There's a lot going on inside of your body. And one of the most important things you can do is actually recognize what's happening in your body and try to deal with that before dealing with whatever the issue was that took you into the fight. So I always tell people, don't use any of the couples therapy jargon we've talked about. Like, I don't want you guys to be a speaker listener right now. It's not possible. I don't want you to like sit and validate each other. It's not possible. Your bodies are unsafe. And so some really important things to do is to take breaks because by doing that, you teach your body, I'm allowed to be safe when I need to be. So if you tend to be more of a pursuer and you have a partner who's a distancer, let your partner take a break because you're actually teaching your partner that they're safe with you, that they can have autonomy when they need it and no one's going to violate that. Um, I tell people, you know, can you tend to the attachment very quickly in the smallest way possible because that helps deescalate your partner's physical overwhelm. So can you say, I need a break, but I love you so much but I need a break and then stomp away because that helps them with the threat. And then being able to breathe and slow your heart rate. When people are flooded on average, their heart is above a hundred beats per minute, which is what happens when people are running, 
playing drums. Uh-huh. You know, this is not where your heart needs to be while you're talking to your loved one. No. So breathing, doing something soothing, and taking at least 20 minutes before you come back. Because when you're both in that threat mode, your bodies are in a place where they actually aren't going to allow you to solve conflict. So your body has to come first. Yes. Yeah. It's so important. And just to add in a bit more of the the gender piece that we've been talking about is that Gottman finds in his research that when he hooks up for heterosexual relationships, that in a conflict conversation, that the male's response goes through the roof where a female's response is is not going up as high. So that's also really interesting that uh, a woman can tolerate a distressful conversation physiologically more so than a male partner, which which is so important when we think of, you know, we we know 80% of couples, it's the female is the pursuer and the male is the distancer. Yes. Given this physiological information. It makes sense, right? With socialization, Women can, on average, of course, there are people who don't fit into this, but on average can handle more um, emotional information because they've been presented with it more often in their life. Uh So it would be like asking me to pick up a weight that I've never, ever lifted before. I can't lift it, but if I've practiced lifting weights my entire life, it's going to be easier. So women in relational conflict don't go down that ladder as quickly which is why a woman actually might stay in fight or flight. They might scream and yell for a while. They still might go there um, or stomp out or threaten to leave. But the male in the relationship might drop down all the way to the bottom of the ladder and just be completely tapped out because they just haven't had a lot of experience with emotional conversations. And, And yeah, emphasizing that this is not for all couples, but this is what the research shows. What the research shows. And if it's helpful in your relationship, uh, then it's helpful. And if you're like, nope, we're opposite to that. I've worked with many couples who are opposite to that. Um, That is completely normal too. But what can you kind of like glean from the research about yourself? You know, how does this show up for you? What are some things that you could do to be able to stay in those conversations um, in a capacity where you're not both triggered and threatened. So there's often this expression that we marry our unfinished business. Have you heard that? Yes. What do you you think that means if we're thinking about attachment in our relationships? Well, I think it's funny because it also goes with the expression of you marry your dad or you marry your mom. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you find the unmet need. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, Harville Hendricks talks about that beautifully, which is that we, we leave childhood having a lot of unmet needs emotionally, and that we often meet someone who, um, in, a, in a way that we don't recognize at first, because we're full of love hormones, <laughs> need someone who disappoints us in the same ways. And we go through life almost repeating a pattern of, I hope I can meet the same type of person that doesn't disappoint me this time. So I hope that this person who has all the good characteristics that my parents had, they're funny, they're hardworking, they're interesting, they're warm, they're whatever. I hope that they're all of those things 
but that they don't have the bad that I didn't like. I hope that they aren't um, withholding. I hope that they aren't inconsistent. I hope that they aren't um, fiery. I hope that they're not embarrassing, whatever it is. And we end up accidentally meeting people who have that same template. And we try really hard. And this is why I talk to people a lot about, like, I hate those lists about um, the very basic non-negotiable lists that often, <laughs> like, um, dating shows will teach people to make, you know. Oh, I, want, I don't want someone who's hippie. I want someone who's an attorney. I don't want, um, you know, I don't want someone who dresses this way. I want someone who dresses this way. Usually the things you write on that list are your very surface level attempts at not marrying your parent or partnering Mm -hmm. with your parent. Um, But what happens is that you then meet the lawyer who still has all the things you hated about the hippie. You know, you meet the lawyer who, yes, they look really nice and they're smart and all the things that your parents were, but they disappoint you because they're disorganized anyway. Right. Right. And so that's, that's kind of what it means to meet people who, and you're hoping that they respond to you, that they're more responsive and that they meet your needs in the way that people didn't meet them when you were young. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because as I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking it's not just that the, that person um, finds that individual, but it's also that they then keep repeating the same thing over and over again. So like you had said earlier, like I, I learned to get my needs met by hyperactivating, by getting really loud and escalating. And so I'm doing that again in this relationship. And there are only so many ways that someone can respond to that. So if you continue to do the same thing in every relationship, then the question is, well, how, and, and I think this is such an important question, like how am I contributing to what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is such an important thing that you brought up is that if we continually enter into these spaces, we're probably meeting people who in some ways respond in similar ways. And if we're reacting in similar ways, we're actually activating the exact same pattern that we wanted to see change. Um, And a lot of the things that we talk about when I'm doing Gottman Method Therapy is how much of this fight is really related to some of the stuff that you've always wanted to see be different? You know, mm-hmm. how much of this is related to a dream that you had that when you, um, you know, distance in this way that finally this person would actually respect your autonomy and let you be, or that when you cried out for help or a hug or whatever it is that you finally have a partner that put down all of their work and ran back to the house and was just there for you. So we talk a lot about how arguments um, and these patterns can be so activated by what we hoped would be different. But if we're not behaving differently, it's not going to be. So how can we then look at that behavior? So, you know, the common question is, well, how do I become more secure? So someone who is more anxiously attached, what, what do they need to work on? Yeah, so a couple things they would need to work on is assertiveness is really important. Boundary setting is important. Self-soothing. So like I talked about, recognizing when you're in that threat mode, when you're feeling like something is, you're going to lose the person, being able to breathe, take breaks, step away. 
um, recognizing your needs and being able to express them in a way that the other person can hear you. Mm. So all of those types of things are really important. I think also setting your own goals, having things that feel important to you outside of the relationship so that you have something you're anchoring into um, that feels good beyond just this other person. For someone who's more avoidant, it would be working on how can you be vulnerable in a safe way? How can you start to identify the feelings? So actually recognize what they are and learn the words for them, which is really big. Um, and for, and for that often, one, you can doubt, like go onto Google and type in emotion wheel and print that yeah. out. And, and I tell my couples, you know, print that out and practice each day or once a week sitting down together and, and saying, how do you feel? Okay. If you say frustrated, actually, and sometimes we get stuck on, I'm frustrated. Well, frustration leads into all of these other prongs that can help expand your own experience and awareness of emotions, but also your partner's understanding of you. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up, you know, print it out and then talk about it with your partner, because I, I think that there's a lot you can do on your own, but the growth you make is so significant when your partner is willing to recognize what you need instead of just what they need and is willing to help you um, to kind of heal these types of wounds. So a more anxiously attached partner, it's beautiful when their more avoidant partner is willing to just take one little step of discomfort towards what that anxious person needs. So being able to say, you know, it's really hard for me to sit with you in this conversation right now, but I love you. So I'm doing it. That is huge. Or honey, you know, I think that it would be really, really good for you if we did X, Y, and Z to help you through this issue. Do you want to talk about your feelings? And for the partner of someone who wants space more often or distance, are you willing to, when they're vulnerable and say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm frustrated, I'm sad right now. Are you willing to then respond to them in the way they need the response so that they know that they're safe with you? So maybe sometimes not pushing the conversation further and just being able to say, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. What would make you feel good right now? Do you just want to like step away from this and watch some TV together? Should we go on a walk? Do you want to cook dinner? And really being able to respond to them in a way that makes them feel safe. Mm. There's this kind of sense, it's, it's been a theme I've been thinking about, and it's the, the not personalizing or not internalizing our partner's experiences, that our partners, you know, if you think of the individuals high in anxiety, sees that their partner is down and they internalize that and personalize it and think, oh no, I've done something wrong. They don't love me anymore. But actually your partner has this whole world going on inside of them that we often don't know about. Mm-hmm. And being able to kind of take that step back and say, what could be going on for my partner rather than getting the flood of going inwards of, of my anxiety? Yes. And that's where curiosity comes in. I think curiosity is one of the biggest things you could do to create secure attachment yes. on either end. So if you tend to be more impacted when somebody, let's say, gets cold and your anxiety tells you this means that they're leaving me or whatever. Can you teach yourself to be truly curious, not um, reactively curious, like you're leaving me, aren't you? But honey, what's going on? I'm sensing something. Can we talk about that? And also for the person who tends to distance, when your partner's having a feeling, can you get, you don't need to do anything about it. And that is actually one of the things that for 
people who distance, they feel very burdened as if they're going to have to like fix everything. And that can be overwhelming. Your only job is to be curious. You just have to say, what's going on? I can see you seem upset or I can, I can hear that something really just bothered you. Can you tell me what you're thinking about? Curiosity is huge in creating safety between two people. Absolutely. One of the things we haven't really talked about is more of the disorganized attachment. Yeah. So there's another attachment style that kind of shows aspects of both. Um, And this style, which is called disorganized, often developed out of having caregivers that were both like a source of comfort and fear. So they might've been somebody that said, hey, come give me a hug. And then they gave you a hug and they smacked you, right? Mm -hmm. So you never really knew what you were going to get. So you feel similarly disorganized in your romantic relationships where sometimes connection feels like a source of comfort and sometimes it feels really scary. Um, And unfortunately, sometimes what happens is that you might also replicate some of that where sometimes you're very safe to be with and um, comforting and present. And then sometimes your threat response gets triggered. And so perhaps you say things that you don't mean, or you, you know, throw things or can become a little bit frightening sometimes to the other person. And all of that, again, is going back to potential trauma that happened and the way that it's showing up in your body. But that is another attachment style that can show up in relationships. Yeah. And it does come back to that safety piece, right? The what, how did I feel safe as a child? Okay. So you and I are both mothers and I know a common thing that I hear from moms is they do worry about the security of their child. Mm -hmm. And so for that mother listening, who does worry about that, what, what would you say to them about worrying (laughs) about whether their child is secure or not from an attachment lens? So first of all, Attachment theory and research shows us that you really only have to be good enough, which means you just have to do it most of the time, that you're going to miss your child's needs a lot of the time. It's just going to happen. You're not always going to respond to the cry the right way. You're not always going to give the hug at the right time. Your kid's going to want to share information with you and you're going to be like, oh my God, I don't care about any more dinosaur information. But these things are going to happen. That's not going to make or break your child. Um, So you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect. You might then wonder, but I have attachment problems and my parents were good enough. Well, that's the reality. Your kids are going to grow up to have their own way of engaging with other people. And all you can do is be good enough. And unfortunately, and fortunately, your kids are their own human self and They might grow up to feel anxious. They might grow up to be a little bit more distant. They might grow up to be very secure. And that's just how it is. And you're going to see who your child grows to be in all of their glory. And all you can do is try your very best to guide them into feeling confident with their ability to connect and their ability to be autonomous so that they have both of these things. Um, But we all fall on a spectrum no one's going to be, I don't believe anybody's perfectly secure, even no. though research loves to say that like what 40% of the pop or no, like 60% of the population is 
It's 60%. Yeah. And most of that research is self-report, right? And we know that self-report, that sometimes self-report doesn't always capture. Yeah. And like, who are they? Who are they reporting? You know, it's interesting, but we're all on a spectrum somewhere. All of us are either a little more anxious and activated, a little less activated. Um, And you just have to do your best to love on your kids the way that that you can, that the capacity that you have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. And, and to remember too that our attachment, what's really cool about the research that we know now is that attachment changes across the lifespan and within different relationships. And that, you know, I, I do the ECR experiences and close relationships with clients. And I ask them, think about mom, think about dad, think about your partner and different attachment styles show up and that's completely normal. And, and at the same time too, what you said, Liz, that I really like is that remembering we don't get to be the narrators or control every experience our children have. And I can remember really feeling that when my son entered the school system and how hard that is that he's off there having his own experiences and a child does whatever. And we just don't get to control that, but we do get to choose how we respond when they are with us. We get to make that choice. And sometimes that also means parents setting a boundary and saying, you know, I I know you really need me to play Legos today or in this moment. And I really can't because I have to do this. But tomorrow, buddy, or later, we're building the best Lego house ever. Yeah, exactly. But I'll still be here tomorrow. I'll still be here. Yeah. What, What would be your top tip, knowing that you are a couples therapist trained in Gottman's method? What, what would be your top tip for couples? Learn to be responsive to who your partner is, who they are, and what they like. That's my top tip. If your partner is a solution coach, learn when they're in that mode, how they like to be responded to. Mm. And if you're a solution coach and your partner is more emotional, how do they like to be responded to? Because at the end of the day, that's what attachment is all about. It's about the way people experienced others responding to them. And they either experienced it as the other person doing what they wanted them to do, what felt good, or not doing it. And so you, you can stop the replication by instead of responding the way you think that you want to be responded to, really attune to who your partner is and respond to them. That's great. That's, that's so important. Absolutely. So tell, tell the listeners where they can find you. Yeah. So I own a therapy practice that's in Pennsylvania. We serve people in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, and New York. And so if you need therapy in any of those areas, you can find us at www.abetterlifetherapy.com. And I also run a membership program. It's called Love Lessons 365. You can find information about that through Instagram. It's usually the easiest place to find it. Um, And my Instagram handle is at Liz Listens. And I will put the links in the show notes so that people can find you and connect with you. Thank you so much, Liz, for giving us your time for sitting with me. I so appreciate everything that you offer, the community that you're building. I mean, you just are a wealth of information. And I know so many people benefit from your posts and from being in your membership space. So thank you. You too. You're a wealth of information. I love (laughs) talking to you today and I really appreciate you bringing me on. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not substitute for the care of a licensed mental health care provider. 
Until next time, have a great week. What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in. Fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.